Before I read from Genesis chapter 3, I thought I would again plug the introduction to the Christian faith class that we're offering at 4 o'clock on Sunday evenings. Uh, We're about halfway through this particular class. We will offer it again. I uh, have said over and over to my wife, and I think I'm probably annoying her by now. I've said it so many times, but I, I love the catechism. I love how powerful it is in giving us a, a way to, to present the gospel and to teach through Christian doctrine in, in a very careful manner. And the way I promoted the class before we started it was to say, it would be good for you even if you've been a Christian long, a long time, but pre- please bring those who do not yet know Christ or those who are young in Christ to the class because the gospel would be presented there and, and basic Christian doctrine will also be presented there. And that has happened, and I'm thankful for that. I pray that it continues on through to the end and that it happens again in the future. I'll add one more little um, plug, though. If you are the parent of a young child, it would be very good for you to attend that class in the future when we offer it again. Why? So that you might grow in your understanding of the catechism and then be better equipped to do what with it except teach your children these doctrines as well. Uh, So I would encourage you to jump in the next time it's offered. Hopefully, uh, after the uh, first of the year, we will get to it one more time. The Old Testament reading for today is from Genesis chapter 3. It's a familiar text, but I want it to be extra familiar in your minds as we move on to our consideration of Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring." He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turn every way to guard the way to the tree of life. With that story in mind, let us turn now to to Revelation chapter 12. And we will consider verses 1 through 6 today. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We do pray that the Lord would help us to understand it and put it to practice as well. If we were to step back from the book of Revelation for just a moment to ponder all that it has revealed to us so far. It has revealed a lot, hasn't it, Uh, as we've considered over these past few months If we were to do that, here is one question we might ask. Why is the world as it is? Why is the world as it is? Why are there two kingdoms in the world today, one that belongs to God wherein He is worshipped and served by His people as Lord, while those in the other remain diametrically opposed to His rule? Why Why is the world like this? And why does there exist such hostility between these two kingdoms? The church of God, as we have seen, is under continual assault as she sojourns in this world. The assault that comes against her is far from monotone. Instead, the church is besieged in a diversity of ways. Her members are often tempted by the world. False teaching is also a threat to her. And persecution threatens the church also. The book of Revelation has portrayed all of this to us in such a vivid way, beginning there with the letters to the seven churches and then with the visions that followed. But the question we might ask after considering all of these things is, why is the world this way? Why the conflict? Why the suffering? Why the persecution? Why the evil in the world and thus the judgments of God poured out Uh, Indeed, this is what the book of Revelation has pictured for us. Uh, We can see it also with our natural eyes as we observe the world today, can't we? The book of Revelation and the, the, the portrayals that we see in it correspond perfectly to the world that we see. It's a messed up world uh, that we live in. Uh, The world is not right with God. Indeed, God does have his people in the world. They are known by Him, they are spiritually protected and preserved, they are numbered by God, and yes, they will be trampled by the nations, being given over to trials and tribulations, suffering and even death for a time. But why is the world the way that it is? 
Uh, brothers and sisters, I, I want you to know that we have now come to the very heart of the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, verse 1, we find the major transition in the book of Revelation. The book up to this point, has mainly described to us how things will be in heaven and on earth in the time between Christ's first and second comings. God and His Christ are enthroned where? They are seated in heaven. But on earth, God's people will live in the midst of a crooked and rebellious people where they will have tribulation. But God is not blind to it. He knows who belongs to Him. They are numbered for battle. They are sealed as His personal possession. And He also knows the wicked and their deeds. He sees them. And He is able to judge the wicked, even now pouring out partial and perpetual judgments with great precision. And He will finally and fully judge at the end of time. Friends, in this age, there will be, once more I will say it again, trials and tribulations. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then, our Lord says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24, 9-14. Is this not a wonderful description of the world in which we now Live And this is what the book of Revelation has portrayed for us so far. But now, the book will provide a more piercing answer to the question that we have already asked this morning. Why? Why is the world as it is? The book of Revelation will now answer that question by revealing that behind it all, behind all that has been revealed so far to us, behind all that we perceive with our natural senses, rages an ancient spiritual battle that is invisible to our eyes. We see the effects of it in the world today, don't we? But the battle is, first of all, spiritual and invisible to us. Revelation is going to reveal something of this ancient cosmic conflict so that we might see it with eyes of of faith. That is the transition we are now experiencing, mainly a description of how things will be in the time between Christ's first and second coming, to now a, a more probing consideration of the question, why is the world like this then? And the answer to that question will be, there is a spiritual battle uh, that rages. At this point, I think it would be very beneficial for you to know something of the basic structure of the book of Revelation chapters 12 through 20. I'd like to overview it for you now so that you might see where we are heading. heading. Uh, Four figures will be introduced to us in these chapters, chapters 12 through 20. These four figures uh, represent powers that oppose God and His people. And then we will notice that these same four who are introduced to us will be defeated by God and His Christ and judged in the reverse order that they were introduced. These chapters, therefore, reveal to us something of the spiritual battle that rages beyond our sense perception. 
That is what Revelation chapters 12 through 20 do. They reveal something to us about the spiritual battle that rages beyond our sense perception. I want you to notice that here in chapter 12, Satan himself is introduced for the first time. He has been alluded to before in the book of Revelation, but here he is introduced in a most explicit way. Look at 12.3, where he is described as a great red dragon. Drop your eye down to 12.9, where he is identified by name. He is called the great dragon. We are told that he was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Notice that in chapter 13, two of the powers that Satan uses to wage war against God and his people are introduced. First, there is the beast that rises out of the sea. Look at 13.1. The beast, we will see, represents persecuting powers. Secondly, the beast that rises out of the earth is introduced in 13.11. This beast will later be called the false prophet in 16.3 and 19.20. And then, if you turn all the way over to chapter 17, you will see that it is there that the great prostitute or harlot is introduced in 17.1. She will represent the seductiveness of the world. So by the time we come to the end of chapter 17, four key players in this ancient and cosmic battle will have been introduced to us one at a time. Satan is the person behind it all. He is the one who is motivating, empowering, directing the opposition towards the kingdom of God and of Christ. But he uses these three powers primarily in his fight. The persecuting beast, the false prophet, and the harlot. These wage war against all that belongs to God and to his Christ. I would like you to recognize uh, just briefly that these three Powers have already been alluded to, especially in the letters to the seven churches. Those churches were struggling with one of these things or another, sometimes more than one. Some of the churches were being threatened especially by persecution. Some of the churches were being threatened especially by uh, false teaching. And other churches were being threatened by prosperity. They were being lured by the seductive powers of the world. So there, though the names were not used, we saw the effect of the first beast, the second, and the harlot. Who are they obedient to except Satan himself? So they have been alluded to earlier in the book of Revelation. We saw the effect of them even in the letters to the seven churches, but now in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapters 12 through 20, they are introduced to us one at a time. Satan, the first beast, the second who is the false prophet, and then the harlot who represents the seductiveness of the world. That is where chapter 17 uh, brings us to these powers wage war against all that belong to God and to His Christ. But notice that beginning with chapter 18, each of these powers who have been introduced to us are defeated by God and judged in the reverse order that they were introduced. In chapter 18, the harlot was just introduced to us, but right away she is judged. And then in chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, we see a very brief description of the destruction of the false prophet and the persecuting beast. They are judged in very quick time. And then in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we find a description of the defeat and judgment of Satan himself. And so chapters 12 through 20 
have a chiastic structure to them. Uh, If you were to diagram this whole section of the book of Revelation, it would form a kind of X to where you have Satan, the first beast, the second beast, and the harlot introduced. And then in reverse order, you have the judgment of the harlot, the judgment of the second beast, the judgment of the first, and the judgment of Satan himself. Uh, Friends, the point is this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, Ephesians 6, 12 through 13. This is the thing that the book of Revelation is going to be urging us to do, to prepare ourselves for this cosmic battle. All of chapter 12 really does go together. It's divided nicely into three parts, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, and 13 through 17. But we will only discuss verses 1 through 6 today, given our time constraints. And as we consider verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12, three things need to be recognized concerning this ancient and invisible battle. One, Notice that in this cosmic conflict, Satan is identified as the primary opponent of God. Two, notice that Satan is also identified as the primary opponent of God's people. And three, notice that Satan is identified as the primary opponent of God's Messiah. These three things need to be recognized as we consider Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Let us first consider that in this cosmic conflict... Satan is the primary opponent of God. He is explicitly mentioned for the first time in Revelation 12:3, where we read, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Revelation 12:3. John is again in the world of vision, is he not? There are symbolic things that are taking place here. We must remember that. We are not left to wonder, though, who this image represents. What, what does this red dragon represent uh, in 12.9? We are specifically told that this great dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Notice briefly that we are told his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, Revelation 12.4. Here is symbolized the fall, not only of Satan, but of other angels too. It is likely that included in this reference to the fall of angels is also a reference to the effect that these fallen angels have upon the people of the earth. Remember that in the book of Revelation, heaven and earth correspond to one another. To whom were the letters to the seven churches written, do you remember? To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. And so from the beginning we see that there is correspondence between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. So that the letter written to the earthly church in Ephesus was addressed to the angel of that church. And in the same way we see here portrayed for us the fall of Satan, his tail sweeping down a third of the stars of heaven. Included in that, I believe, is a reference both to the fallen angels, whom the scriptures call demons, and also uh, to those whom they have had an effect upon on the earth, such as sinful world powers. In 12.3, the dragon is described in a most terrifying way as having seven heads. Can you picture it now? You have to use your imagination. Remember, we're in the book of Revelation. Seven heads and ten horns, and on his 
heads seven diadems or, or crowns. Now, quoting from Dennis Johnson's commentary on Revelation, I do this because he puts things so succinctly, and I need to be succinct if we are to get through this. The dragon is shown in symbols, signaling his cunning wisdom. How many heads does this dragon have? Seven. He is cunning and wise. Also symbolized is his great power. How many horns does this dragon have? Ten horns. Horns symbolize power uh, throughout the scriptures. He has ten of them. And also symbolized is the dragon's authority to influence others. How many diadems does this dragon have? Seven diadems. All of the symbolism is, of course, drawn from the Old Testament. We are not left to ourselves to just use our imaginations to find uh, the meaning of the symbolism here in the book of Revelation. We have not done that at all since the beginning. Instead, we have consistently looked to the scriptures themselves. Help us to know what these things symbolize. We look not to today's newspaper. We look not to our imagination. We look instead to the pages of Holy Scripture. And what I have come to love about the symbolism of the book of of Revelation is that the symbols are so complex. They are very complex. They are a composite of a variety of symbols found within the Old Testament. The image I have is this, that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's almost as if he's walking through the Old Testament, picking up this passage and that one, and this symbol and that one, and he brings them then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, into the book of Revelation and presents these symbols as a kind of composite or a combination of symbols found scattered throughout the Old Testament text so that when we study the book of Revelation, we cannot say, look, this points directly to this passage in the Old Testament period. But oftentimes we find ourselves saying, look, this symbol here seems to point to all of these various passages and all of these symbols in order to bring to us a great variety of meaning. This was true also in our study of the book of John, interestingly, uh, I I found. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, refers to this particular image, the image of this multiple-headed dragon, as a mosaic of Old Testament imagery. I like that. It's a mosaic of Old Testament imagery. When the dragon is described to us here in 12.3, it should remind us, first of all, of the serpent of Genesis 3. I read that passage for a reason. For there we saw God's opponent identified from the outset. It should remind us of the serpent of Genesis 3. It should also cause us to remember the Old, Testament, Old Testament's repeated reference to God's defeat of an evil sea monster which symbolized the evil kingdoms who oppressed Old Covenant Israel. If you've read your Old Testament much, you'll notice there is this repeated reference to this strange sea monster who opposes God and his people whom God is to defeat. If you want to see an example of this, you could go to Psalm 74, 13 and 14. You could go to Job 26, 12 and 13. You can go to Psalm 89, 10. You could go to Ezekiel 29, 3 to find examples. Uh, The imagery of ten horns is drawn from the description of the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. So do you see this is a mosaic of imagery It's all brought together then and held before us as this red dragon with multiple heads and horns and diadems. What we have then is a symbolic description of Satan. He does not really look like this. You understand that, brothers and sisters. Do not fall back into that hyper-literalism that you were raised with, perhaps. We are in 
the world of symbols. Satan does not really look like this. He is a fallen angel, a spiritual being, but he is described to us in this symbolic way so that we might know something of his character and of his power. He is that ancient serpent who opposed God in the beginning, Genesis 3. He is ferocious. He is bloodthirsty. Think of the color red, especially in connection with Revelation 7, 3 through 6, where the harlot is described as riding upon a scarlet beast, being drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. He is cunning, having seven heads. He is powerful, having ten horns. And he has authority upon the earth, wearing ten diadems or crowns. Do you see all that this symbolism brings before us, especially if we are interpreting it in light of the Old Testament? Uh, The simple truth to observe is this. If all of that was very complex to you, here is the simple truth. Satan is the primary opponent of God in this cosmic battle. And we should take him seriously. He is powerful. He is ferocious. You would also do well to notice that when the other three characters that I've earlier mentioned, the two beasts and the harlot, Um, are introduced to us in chapters 12 and 17, they are described in such a way so as to make it clear that they are motivated and empowered by this dragon. Clearly what we are seeing when they are introduced is that there is a connection between them and this dragon introduced to us in Revelation chapter 12. Notice that the beast that rises from the sea in Revelation 13.1 also has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on his horns. It's not the same creature, not the same figure, but they share this in common. Why? It's so that we might understand that what this first beast does in persecuting the people of God using political power, he does in the name of and being motivated by and moved along by the dragon that has been introduced to us in Revelation chapter 12. He shares this in common with him. And notice that when the beast that rises out of the earth is introduced in 1311, the one who is later called the false prophet, uh, he is said to speak like a dragon. In other words, all of the false prophecy, all of the false teaching that issues forth from this beast's mouth comes because it is motivated by and moved along by whom? The dragon, who is Satan, who has been introduced to us here in Revelation 12. And then, as for the harlot of chapter 17, we, sh- we see that she serves the dragon too, for she is connected with the beast of Revelation 3.1 when she rides upon this seven-horned and seven-headed beast with ten diadems. She rides upon him. And so what she does, her power in the world, is again connected back to, ultimately, Satan himself. The point is this. Satan is the primary opponent of God in this cosmic battle. He wages war against, the, against God's kingdom using the powers of persecution, first beast, using the powers of false teaching, second beast, and also using the powers of seduction, the harlot who is introduced later on. You know the trouble with this hyper-literalistic view of the book of Revelation is that it leads Christians to sit around thinking, I wonder when we will see these beasts, you know? If we are to really interpret the book of Revelation literally whenever possible, that really should be our conclusion. Man, it's going to be freaky when that first beast like comes up out of the sea someday, that, that sea monster. I mean, what, what are we going to do? Or what about the one on the land? Or what about this harlot? I wonder what individual person it will be. You know, this sort of... It's symbolic, friends. 
It's symbolic of things that are already present in the world now. Are Christians persecuted in the world today? We are sometimes, but certainly around the world they are even put to death. So tell me, brothers and sisters, when Christians are put to death by political powers around the world, is the first beast present? Yes, the first beast is present. Is there false teaching today? We definitely have plenty of that in our culture. Does it threaten the church? It does. It threatens her very existence. So is that second beast, the false prophet, here? Here now, yes. Certainly he is. And what about the harlot? I mean, certainly the harlot isn't here yet. Are you kidding me? Are are you not sometimes tempted to go after the things of this world? Does not the world look sometimes very shiny and alluring to you as a Christian? I would say perhaps she is the biggest threat to the church today. She's here now. It's not a future figure. Where does the book say it's going to be a future figure? She's here now. So sadly, so many Christians read this book and say literal and future, and they miss the point entirely, and they're devoured then by the harlot, the prophet, the false prophet, and the beast who persecutes because they're blind to the fact that these powers are here before us. The point is this. Satan is the primary opponent of God in this cosmic battle. As I was considering these things, an image came to mind of allied soldiers. I always war illustrations. It's all I got. I'm sorry. Um, Allied soldiers fighting a battle somewhere in Europe during World World War II. Can you picture it? There they are, front lines, machine guns and tanks and all the rest. What do they see with their natural eyes? They see that. They see German soldiers threatening them with machine guns and tanks, right? They see bunkers. They see bombs. They hear it all. I mean, that's what their senses are able to perceive. But what is going on in the minds of Allied soldiers, at least from time to time? What do they imagine? They imagine Hitler somewhere hidden away in Germany, in a safe place. Have they ever seen him? None of them have ever seen them before. But do they know that he's there? Yes, they're very much aware of the fact that he's there because they see the effects of him right before their eyes. They see the effects of them, uh, of him. They cannot see him, but they see uh, the effects of his power. The same is true for the battle that we fight. Uh, the battle rages all around us. We can see the effects of it. Uh, but we cannot see the powers that motivate it all. The book of Revelation is here in chapter 12 and onward, revealing something to us of the powers that motivate the battle that rages around us even today. Even today. Before we move on uh, to the second point in this sermon, I'd like to read for you. This is so important. Uh, we, we're moving so, so slowly through the book of Revelation. It's going to take us forever to get to the end of it. Uh, but I think this book, it, it was meant to be read quickly so that you might not you know, be left to wonder what happens for, for very long. It'll take us months to finally come to what happens, uh, but, but perhaps it's good to, to look ahead from time to time. I want to read for you uh, the description of Satan's demise. Okay? He's been introduced to us here in Revelation 12, but his demise is described to us in Revelation 20, verse 10. Just listen to this. And the thing I want you to notice about this description of Satan's demise is the brevity, the terseness, and the absolute simplicity of the description. Revelation 12, 20, 10. Revelation verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 10. Um, here is what the text says. And the devil who had deceived them, that is the wicked, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
That, that's all we're told of the demise of Satan. And I want you to notice how brief the description of Satan's destruction is, especially when compared to the extensive, vivid, and quite frankly terrifying description of the dragon and his servants found in Revelations chapters 12, Revelation chapters 12 through 17. It's almost if the book of Revelation is, is building things up, leading the reader to expect that God is going to have a very difficult time, isn't he? defeating this this great and powerful dragon who is so ferocious, who who threatens us so severely. It's almost as if the reader is being built up to expect this great final cosmic conflict where God will struggle to have victory. But when we come to the end of it, what do we find? God snaps his fingers and it's done. Do you notice that? All of these chapters describing Satan and and his servants to us and and the powers behind the battle that we fight, and God snaps his fingers, and the same is true um, of the other figures as well. Um, Christ speaks a word, and it is finished. But notice this. In this cosmic conflict, Satan is the primary opponent of God. Uh, But before God Almighty, this is the point. He is nothing at all. This is the point. We have an opponent. Is he real? Yes, we would be foolish to ignore that fact. But before God Almighty, He is nothing at all. He will be destroyed in an instant. Secondly, notice that in this cosmic conflict, Satan is the primary opponent of God's people. If Satan is opposed to God, then it is no wonder that he is also opposed to all who have God as Lord and King. In verse 1, we read, and a great dragon, a great sign appeared in heaven. I'm sorry. A, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Look now down to the second part of verse 4, where we read, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So who does this woman symbolize? Who does she symbolize? The Roman Catholics tend to say that this woman symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus, only. That is their interpretation. This is a depiction of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and only that. The dispensationalists will usually say that the woman symbolizes ethnic Israel who will be particularly persecuted for three and a half years during a great tribulation, yet, guess when, in our future. Both of these interpretations are far too narrow. The, the second, I would agree, is just plain wrong, the dispensationalist interpretation being based upon faulty presuppositions and a flawed method of interpretation. It is far better to see that this woman symbolizes God's people, that is, the elect of God under both the Old and New Covenant. The Roman Catholics are actually not entirely wrong to say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is symbolized here. You can see it, can't you? Uh, In fact, that's probably the first thing that came to your mind. But they are wrong to think that the symbolism points only to her. Something more profound is being communicated here in the image of this woman. Something broader uh, than Mary as an individual, though clearly she is in view. I read from Genesis 3 
at the introduction to this sermon, not only to orient your minds to the serpent as God's enemy, but also to orient your minds to the promise that was delivered to Adam and Eve shortly after the fall by way of the curse pronounced upon the serpent who deceived them. It's there in Genesis 3.15 that our minds need to go. It's there that God spoke to the serpent saying what? I will put enmity between you and who? The woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So there is this cosmic conflict that has existed from shortly after the fall between whom? The dragon, there called in Genesis 3, the serpent, and this, this woman. And between, more specifically, your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The gospel was announced for the first time here in Genesis 3.15. And do not forget the curse announced to the woman also. I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, I think that manifests itself in two ways. Every woman who has had a child would say, yeah, I've, I've experienced that effect of the fall. But think of what has just been said to the serpent, that the seed of the woman is going to defeat you. In other words, there is going to be an arduous, laborious process through which you, humanity, are going to have to walk in order for this promised seed of the woman to finally come forth. Um, It is here in Genesis 3.15 that the gospel is first announced. Man had fallen. Man was now alienated from God, being now at enmity with him. But God in his grace would provide a savior who would stomp the head of the deceiver and thus bring salvation to man. Who is this savior? Who is this redeemer? Uh, Who is this one who has defeated the serpent and will destroy him fully? And finally, in the end, we know him to be Christ Jesus, the Lord. And would he come to save uh, us according to Genesis 3? And when would he do this? And how would he do it? It would be through the woman, Eve. He would be one of her offspring, and he would come in due time. I want you to remember that the dragon heard this, didn't he? He heard this, for the gospel was announced actually to him and then in the hearing of Adam and Eve. And what do the scriptures describe to us from that point forward except the story of the hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent? That is the story of scripture. That is the story of redemption. These two kingdoms are set from the beginning in opposition to one another, and we see the effects of this hostility between the two seeds. It becomes exceedingly clear, by the way, that this story was not about the hostility that exists between human beings and snakes very quickly. This is not about that. Instead, the story is about the hostility that exists between God and Satan and the people who belong to God and to the people who belong to the devil, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The whole Bible describes this conflict that exists, first of all, not in the earthly realm, but in the spiritual realm. It manifests itself in the physical realm, but it exists, first of all, in the spiritual realm. The dragon, from the beginning, has been opposed to God and to his people. Uh, That fact is illustrated in Genesis chapter 4 when wicked Cain rises up and kills righteous Abel. That's what Genesis 4 is about. It it is portraying for us this, this battle or this hostility that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Of course, both Cain and Abel were the physical offspring of Eve, according to the flesh, but spiritually 
Abel was of Eve and of God, and Cain was of whom? The serpent. I mean, that's where the story naturally goes. We, we are shown a manifestation of this spiritual battle in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain rises up and kills Abel, the serpent heard the promise of the gospel. The serpent wants to snuff out the, the, the one that was promised to Eve and wants to do away with him from the beginning. So what happens? We see that Abel belongs to God. Cain belongs to the evil one. Cain rises up and kills Abel. But God will not allow the righteous line to be snuffed out. He rises up another whose name is Seth. And so the story goes on we see that the story continues in the life of Noah and the life of Abraham and the life of David and the life of all the prophets in the life of the elect remnant within Israel and ultimately comes to its conclusion with the birth of Jesus who is the Christ. He is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3, 15. The New Testament says so. And so the woman of Revelation 12 cannot just symbolize Mary, the mother of Jesus, She also symbolizes Mother Israel, the elect of God under the Old Covenant. She is described as being clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. If you go and read Genesis 37 sometime, you'll see the meaning of this symbolism. There you will find a description of Joseph's dream, where his father Jacob is symbolized by the sun, his mother Rachel by the moon, and his 11 brothers as 11 stars, Joseph himself being implied as the 12th star. And so the sun, moon, and 12 stars symbolize Israel. They symbolize Israel under the Old Covenant. Also, you should read Isaiah 54 sometime. There Israel is described as a barren woman, but God promises her that she will have children. And remember all of the other stories concerning barrenness in the Old Testament. This woman in Revelation 12 clearly symbolizes Mary, the mother of Jesus, for she would be the highly favored individual who would have the privilege of giving birth to the Savior, promised to Adam and Eve long ago. But the people of God prior to the birth of Christ are also symbolized in here. Indeed, their whole history can rightly be described as a time of crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth as they awaited the arrival of the Messiah who was to come from them. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Think more broadly than just Mary. And what do you have symbolized here by this woman clothed as she is clothed, bringing our memory back to Genesis chapter 37? You have symbolized here the whole process of redemption from Eve onward to the birth of Christ. And indeed, the elect of God, the people of God called out of the world from that time to the birth of Christ are symbolized here. And indeed, they experienced the agony of childbirth. Birth pains came upon them until the Christ came. That is what is being pictured here. Notice also that the new covenant people of God are represented by this woman. So not only are we to think of the people of God under the old covenant, but also the new if you were to drop your eye down to Genesis 12, Revelation 12, 17, you'll read there uh, that the offspring of this woman are said to be those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who can do that? Keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus except New Covenant, New Testament Christians, 
followers of Jesus Christ. So you have this, again, composite image where the people of God in every age, Old Covenant and New, are symbolized by this woman. The dragon is opposed to her and seeks to devour her. Uh, This is so not only because she gives birth to her child, um, but also afterwards as the dragon pursues her offspring, all who have faith in Christ. After she gives birth, the dragon pursues her into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. Now, most of you were here for previous sermons, and so I do not need to say it again, but this time must symbolize the time of tribulation between Christ's first and second comings. It describes the church age. It is described in different ways, 1,260 days, three and a half years, a time, times, and a time and a half. Uh, But this woman is going to be nourished in the wilderness for 1,260 days, for the entire time between Christ's first and second coming. Uh, This period of time is in fulfillment to the prophecy of Daniel 7. And so in this cosmic conflict, Satan is the primary opponent of God's people. Uh, But do you see that the emphasis of the text is and will continue to be upon God's provision and protection of his people? Here is what I want you to see. Will God's people be pursued by the dragon in this world? Yes, they were from the very beginning, from the moment the gospel was announced to Eve through the curse delivered to the serpent. God's people were pursued by that dragon, that ancient serpent. And we are now, even to this present day. But what is the book of Revelation wanting to emphasize here? This woman who symbolizes God's people in every age will be nourished in the time that the people are left to wander in in the wilderness. This is the thing that cannot be overlooked as we consider uh, this text. Lastly, and, and very briefly, notice that in this cosmic conflict, Satan is the primary opponent of God's Messiah. Who is the dragon most concerned with in this passage? He's concerned to, to devour the woman, but before that, he is more interested in de- devouring the child of the woman. And who is this child? Clearly, he is Jesus the Christ, he is the one born to the Virgin Mary. Uh, Go back sometime and read Matthew 1 and be reminded of his birth. Uh, He was of the seed of Abraham and of David. And then after that, read Matthew chapter 2 and be reminded of how the dragon sought to destroy the Christ child from the moment of his birth through that beast named Herod. We already saw the presence and activity of that first beast that will arise out of the sea there manifesting itself in King Herod who sought to put the Christ child, to death from the beginning. Then read Matthew 4 and be reminded of how the dragon sought to derail the Christ from his mission and tempted him. Where was Christ tempted? In the desert. And yet he was upheld and nourished by God there. It was in the wilderness that God sustained him. For it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then continue reading on of the hostility endured by the Christ in his life by those whom he at one point called children of the devil, John 8.44. And then soon you will come to the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And surely the dragon thought that he had finally succeeded. Can you just try to imagine this for a moment? 
So for all of these eons, there is the dragon frustrated, not being able to snuff out the seed of the woman. He, he, he had Abel killed by Cain, but then Seth came and the line continued. And so the, the, the serpent's frustration must have grown more and more as time passed on, as God preserved his people, as God preserved that elect remnant. Uh, it must have been the case that Satan was very frustrated. Then finally, the, the Christ is born The Messiah comes, he tries to devour him from birth and is not able to succeed. But then one day, this Christ is delivered up to the Romans and he's hung on that cross and he finally breathes his last, saying the words, it is finished, right? And Satan in the spiritual realm must have said, finally, I have won. Finally, I have killed the promised seed. Finally, I'm no longer threatened by him. But then on the third day, Christ rises from the dead. And in that moment, Satan knew that he was defeated fully and finally and ultimately. For the Christ had risen, defeating death, defeating sin, having paid for it through his death on the cross. And then, better yet, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns even now. To use the language of Revelation 12.5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Death was defeated and he ascended, is what we are to think of here. Now the serpent knows he has been defeated. He could not stop God's Messiah from delivering that fatal blow to his head. And now having been mortally wounded, The Christ having been caught up to heaven where he rules and reigns in victory, what is left for the dragon to do except to pursue the woman and her offspring in the wilderness for these three and a half years of tribulation? But just as God was able to keep the Christ child, so too will he keep his people. They will be nourished for these 1,260 days. What a beautiful image we have here. In Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, more will be portrayed to us in the remainder of the chapter. It's the same story, but given uh, with greater detail in the verses to come. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I have explained all of this to you. My prayer is that you would have the wisdom to think upon it deeply and to apply it to your lives. If it is true that behind all of the difficulty, all of the sin, all of the suffering, all the tribulation and persecution that we see in this world, there, there exists a a spiritual conflict, a cosmic battle, an ancient one that rages. Uh, if, If that is true, then certainly we must prepare to fight that battle. We must fight not with earthly weapons, but with spiritual ones. We must be aware as followers of Christ of this battle that rages. Certainly there is so much that we could apply from this text. I have but one point of application that I would like to emphasize with you before we close. If as you read Revelation and the description of the dragon, the two beasts and the harlot, you come away thinking, the world is such a scary and dangerous place, I must run and hide. Do you you see what I'm saying here? If that is what you take away from this text, look at at how scary our enemies are, dragons and beasts and harlots and and, and the rest. And and look at everything else the book of Revelation has said, how how much... uh, tribulation we'll experience in this world. If after reading of all of that you say, I must go find a hole to crawl into somewhere and be as disengaged as humanly possible so that I might 
uh, find a way to, to eke out my existence until the Lord returns. If that is your thought, you've missed the point entirely of the book of Revelation. You've missed it entirely. Um, the book is honest. It does tell us how things really are. Indeed, the battle is real. We have to be aware of the battle. We cannot be naive, can we? Uh, the opponents of God and His people are powerful and fierce, but the book, from beginning to end, is given to produce confidence and boldness in the people of God. That's why the book is given from the beginning. Confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ who has won the victory, and in our God who is willing and able to nourish us as we wander in this wilderness place. That is what the book is seeking to produce within us. It's seeking to produce conquerors. In every one of the letters to the seven churches, the promise was this, to the one who conquers, I will. Do you remember that repeated refrain? To the one who conquers, I will give this or that. You are to conquer then, not in your own strength, but in Christ Jesus' strength. If you are arrogant, thinking yourself to be self-sufficient in the world, my prayer is that you would sober up and come to realize that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you are arrogant, my prayer for you is that you would sober up concerning the threat and that you would run to Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, for shelter. That needs to happen first and foremost. But once you have Christ as your shepherd, then you are to move out boldly. And you are to engage with this world. And you are to live with confidence. You are to live with hope. You are to live with a kind of fearlessness as a child of God. So if you are a timid Christian, I would urge you to remember who you are in Christ Jesus. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, is what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, let us not live timid, isolated, and fearful lives in this world. Let us not be like those timid and faithless spies of Israel who returned back from spying out the land that God had promised to them, saying, The people are too large and too strong and too numerous. Instead, let us go up with the boldness of Caleb and Joshua, who said, The land which we have passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. That land was just a prototype of the new heavens and the new earth, brothers and sisters. And so we are to wander in this wilderness place, not with the timidness of those, those fearful spies, but with the boldness of Caleb and Joshua, who said, the Lord is able to bring us into that promised land. For us, it is not Israel. For us, it is the new heavens and the new earth. So let us, therefore, sojourn in this wilderness with the faith and boldness of Caleb and Joshua. Let us run to engage in the battle and not flee from it in fear. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, do not run in fear, but take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Christ compels us to take up armor. And why would anyone take up armor except this? They were preparing to run into the battle with courage. Let us do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do help us to live in this world with boldness and courage. Lord, strengthen our faith. This battle is invisible to our eyes, Lord, but may we see it clearly with eyes of faith. And may we believe truly in such a confident way that indeed Christ lived and he died and he rose again and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us to live with that sort of confidence and assurance. I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. If there are any who are arrogant, thinking themselves to be self-sufficient, may you humble them, Lord, so that they would run to Christ truly, either at first for salvation or continually for the Christian life. May they run to Christ Jesus for shelter. Lord, if there are any who are timid and fearful, I pray that you would strengthen their hearts by your word, which has just been preached, and by your Holy Spirit so that we might thrive in this world and live as the conquerors that we are in Christ Jesus. These things we say in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, and all of God's people say.